0: Praise the Lord. Well, I'm going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 28 and just read a little bit of the resurrection story. It's an interesting thing to me how that the Bible is so brief in its relation to certain things, certain events that are actually the... Pivot points for all of mankind and and really the universe. The resurrection account is one of those instances. I'll start reading in Matthew chapter 28 verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. The Folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus has just paid the price for all of mankind's sin. He has, according to the Old Testament Scriptures, suffered the waves of God's wrath upon sin, not upon Him, but because He was made to be sin and had to suffer our our death, the death that was due us as well as all of mankind. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus during the time that He was in the heart of the earth. Jesus... As the Bible says, was the firstborn from the dead. Now that can't be physical death because there were people that were raised from the dead in Jesus' ministry. So if he was the firstborn from the dead, it can't be, and it's not talking about physical death. What was he the firstborn from? Spiritual death. That means he had to have died spiritually, not just physically. See, the resurrection wasn't just about a physical resurrection, because if the cross And physical death itself could have paid the price and Jesus wouldn't have had to be anywhere for three days and three nights. He could have come down from the cross as soon as his life ended and that would have been it. It wasn't a mental suffering because God the Father and Jesus himself planned the sacrifice that would be necessary before the foundations of the earth. It was a spiritual suffering. It was a spiritual death. So Jesus, after having accomplished righteousness for the world, for all of mankind shows up and says, cheers. That's what all hell means. It means be cheerful. Literally means cheers. Jesus could have shown up and said, I'm back. He could have said, guys, let me tell you about the last three days. He could have explained the horrors. He could have gotten on to them for being huddled up and... and Behind closed doors because of fear? Because the Bible says he clearly taught them that he was going to suffer, be killed, and raised again the third day. It was too much for them to accept, I I suppose, as it probably would have been for us too. There are a number of things that he could have said, a number of things he could have talked to them about. But Jesus shows up and says, all hail. It was enough that he did the work. He's not there to brag about what he did. He's not there to go in detail about it. He left that for later writers. Mostly the apostle Paul. Jesus met them saying all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go unto to Galilee and there they shall see me. In other words you are going to see me more. Now, I want to turn to uh, Romans chapter 1, a couple of scriptures I want to read uh, in Romans 1, and then also 1 Corinthians 15. I want to fast forward 30, 40 years to Paul's ministry. Paul is writing to the, a, a letter to the church at Rome, a church that he did not start, but that was started from as a byproduct of his ministry. Others that were influenced and saved under Paul's ministry started the church at Rome. To the best of our information at least. And Paul is writing to the church that he's never visited. Someone that looks at him perhaps as a spiritual grandfather. And in starting the, the, what is in my opinion, the um, well not just my opinion, I guess all Bible scholars and theologians would agree with this. Um, the book of Romans is the most doctrinally complete of all of Paul's writings. And Paul, in starting this, says very simply, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, And declared to be the Son of God with power. Notice the first thing that Paul identifies, the first reason that he says that he wrote, the first and most important foundation point or stone that he wants to lay. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Look with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read a a good part of this chapter Paul is writing to the church that has their own ideas about some things, has their own doctrine, has their own way of doing things. He probably um, gave more correction to the church at Corinth than any other church. Church at Corinth was split in a number of ways. They were more celebrity-minded than they were truth-oriented. And as a result, the church... uh, is the only church of the ones that Paul started that we don't have record of. We can't say for sure that it didn't, but we don't have record of it lasting past one generation. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you were saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. After that, he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, that's Peter and the twelve apostles. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at one time, of whom the greater part remain unto this present day, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and then of all of the apostles. And last of all, he's seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am, not, that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Skip down with me to verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? First thing I want you to identify about this is that Paul said, Remember the thing that I preached to you at the first which is what he preached at first to every church, every church that he ever started, and that was Jesus crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. He goes back and reminds them of that. He said, that's the foundation of your salvation. And then he talks about something that's going on in the church, at least among some. I don't know if it's church-wide, but it's among some. That some are denying the resurrection from the dead. And Paul's going to speak of that specifically. So he says, and if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then his Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep, that means died before that point in time. They also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. I want you to notice what he says. He says the real joy of Christianity is in the resurrection. Now we focus a lot about what we have in Christ now, and rightly so. We focus a lot on the power in the name of Jesus, and thank God there is power in the name of Jesus. We focus a lot on our authority over sickness and disease, poverty, and everything that Jesus paid the price for on the cross, and rightly so. But Paul is saying if, if the only benefit of being a Christian is what you have here, then we are of all men most miserable. Folks, what I want to get to is very simply this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who cares that Noah built an ark? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who cares that Moses parted the Red Sea? Or that Joshua caused the sun and the moon to stand still while Israel defeated their enemies? If there is no resurrection of the dead, who cares that David defeated Goliath? Or that Elijah called fire down from heaven? Who cares about any of the Old Testament stories? And who even really cares about the work that Jesus did here on the earth for those three years, healing the sick and doing miracles, if he's not alive today? Now, one of the things that I think... Well, I hate to say hinders us because this is all part of the plan of God, but at least in a natural sense, hinders us. Is that Paul refers, he wrote this at a time when people that were alive when Jesus was raised from the dead were still alive. He speaks of Jesus having been seen following his crucifixion after he was raised from the dead by more than a crowd, by a crowd of more than 500 people at one time. That's hard to dispute. Now, if one person isolated somewhere by himself says, Jesus appeared to me, then it's human nature to say, well, did he really appear? Is he really alive? But Jesus appeared to a crowd of more than 500 people, a bigger crowd than we have here today. You can't dispute that. See, in in, uh, Paul's day, excuse me, in Paul's day, People knew that the resurrection was a historical fact. Doesn't mean everybody believed it. But there was evidence. Worldwide evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Paul, in talking to one of the Roman governors, spoke of Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. Just one man having a vision and hearing a voice. And the Roman governor says, Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian too. Folks, what I want you to understand is, it's our testimony that Jesus is alive that affects the world. Without the resurrection, there is no power to Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no hope in life. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we might as well just get what we can get while we're here, which is the way a lot of people are living because they don't know that Jesus is alive. There's a hunger on the heart of, in, on the inside of every man, in the heart of every man. There's a hunger for something beyond what he can see and feel in this natural life because nobody has ever truly been satisfied with what they've gained here on the earth. Now a lot of people pretend otherwise. A lot of people try to convince themselves that they're happy with what they have now. But there's a hunger in the heart of every man for something beyond what he can see. Thank God for the benefits that we have. David wrote of these things: "Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits, who forgiveth all thy iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases." who redeemeth thy life from destruction and crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Thank God there are natural and earthly benefits, present-day benefits to being in Christ. But all those benefits are because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. I want you to turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 53. There's an old English preacher that came to church one day with a birdcage. It was a broken down thing, it was rusted out, and he set it right on top of the pulpit. And he told a story, and he said, This week I was walking down behind the church, and I saw a little boy with this birdcage, and in it he had two little sparrows. And I walked up to him and I said, What you doing? He said, Well, I caught these birds. So I found this old birdcage at the dump, and so I put them in there so I could hold on to them. He said, what are you going to do with them? Just play with them. He said, well, you know you're going to get tired of playing with them. What are you going to do then? He said, well, I don't know. I've got a couple of cats at home. Maybe I'll take them home and feed them (laughs) to the cats. So this English preacher says, well, let me buy them from you. He said, mister, what do you want to buy old birds for? They're just old, worthless birds. He said, well, I don't want them to be fed to the cats. How much will you take for them? So he came up with some number, some amount of money, and the preacher paid it. The little boy grabbed his money, and his eyes got real big and ran down the street before this guy figured out he'd gotten a raw end of the deal. The pastor told the story. And said, I let those birds free. And he said, Then it occurred to me how alike my experience was to what the devil has done to mankind. Mankind was trapped by sin because of Adam and Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden. And I'm sure he mocked God and said, Look, I've got your prized possession. And I'm going to play with them. I'm going to torment them. I'm going to tease them. I'm going to do everything that I can to them. And then after that, I'm going to destroy them. And God said, What will you take for them? I'm sure this is not a literal translation of the way that it went. But the deal was struck, not on the devil's end, but God's end. The deal was struck. And the price was going to be high. It would cost God everything. It would cost his own blood. So God sent Jesus. Now in Isaiah 53, every Bible scholar will agree this is talking about the Messiah. Not everybody agrees that the Messiah has come. The Jews are still looking for somebody to come and fulfill these things. But we know that Jesus is the Messiah. And in Isaiah 53, verse 10, is one of the most impactful scriptures in all of the Bible. Because it tells of God's plan. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The word bruise is the word crush. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now, I think it's, um, uh, I had a wrong idea of this scripture for a long time. Because somehow or another I had the idea that God was happy to do it. And that can't be the case. But it literally means God was satisfied by the crushing of Jesus. The claims of sin, the demands of justice were satisfied by the crushing of Jesus. So yet it pleased or satisfied the Lord to bruise him, crush him. He has put him to grief. Most translations, literal translations read... He has made him sick. The complete Jewish Bible says it this way. He crushed him with sickness. In other words, it was part of the price that Jesus paid. Yet it pleased or satisfied the Lord to crush him. He has made him sick. When thou shalt make his soul. Now notice who made his soul an offering for sin. Mankind did. Mankind did. There are a lot of things about the crucifixion of Jesus that the uh, the, the gospel writers tell us about that are very unusual, For, for, for I hate to say the, use this term, but for the normal crucifixions of the day. Crucifixion was not an unheard of thing. It was not an uncommon thing. It was the way that the enemies of Rome were dispatched and dealt with. And it was extremely harsh and brutal and purposely so. Because Rome wanted to know, Rome wanted everybody else to know, that this is what happens when you set yourselves against Rome. But some of the things that happened with Jesus' crucifixion were very unusual. As a matter of fact, it talks about some things that related to Jesus' crucifixion that would only take place if a conquered king were being displayed before the the people the fact that the sign was written to hang on the cross this is the king of the Jews and it was written in several languages the, the high priest wanted to change that the high priest went to Pilate according to one gospel account and said don't write that say that he said that he was the king of the Jews Pilate said, What I've written will stand. Golgotha, where the crucifixion took place, is called the place of the skull. It's interpreted in the King James translation as the place of the skull. But it literally means the place of the head. It's talking about death's head. Even the place where Jesus was crucified was the place of death's head. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has made him sick. That doesn't mean he had cancer or leprosy or anything else on the cross. It means God laid the origin and the cause of sickness upon him. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Jesus was an offering for the sins of mankind. Crucified not only by the Jews but also by the Gentiles. To serve as a sacrifice for all. When thou shalt make his offering, his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. That's what's going to bring forth the true seed of Abraham, the church, you and me. He shall prolong his days. That's a, a, a difficult translation. It literally means that he shall live Forever. So even the scriptures that speak of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, speak to eternal life and the resurrection. He shall live forever, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He, meaning God, verse 11, shall see the travail of his soul, the price that he pays, that Jesus pays for sin, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. There's a lot of things about the crucifixion of Jesus and a lot of things about the, the Old Testament reference to the work of Jesus that's not only instructive but awe-inspiring, not in a good way. But the price that Jesus paid was unfathomable. Psalm 88 says that Jesus was crushed by the waves of God's wrath. It's not like Jesus was in the place of paradise or the place of comfort for three days. Just watching the clock waiting for the time that he could rise. He was paying the price for sin. What does that mean? We can only speculate. But what the Bible does tell us is that wave after wave after wave of the wrath of God pounded upon Jesus until he in the heart of the earth despaired. Jesus was at the point, according to the Old Testament scriptures, of losing hope. But then something happened. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4 verse 25. That Jesus was raised from the dead when we were justified. In other words there came a moment in time. A literal moment in time. When the price was paid. And when that price was paid. God spoke from heaven and said it is enough. And since the Bible tells us Jesus was the firstborn or first begotten from the dead, meaning spiritual death, then life came back into Jesus. See, we think of death as being the end of existence, and it's not. Very seldom does the Bible speak of death in that term. Spiritual death is separation from God. And Jesus was separated from God, which means he had to have ceased to be God. I know that's difficult for some to accept, because when you think with the natural mind and operate according to your senses, which is the source of all natural and physical knowledge, then it's hard to accept that. How does Jesus stop being being God? If he was God, how does he cease to be God? Well, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians five twenty one, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Literally, he became sin. He became the embodiment, the, personal, the personification. I'll get that word out in a minute. He became the personification of sin itself. Now, folks, you need to realize the devil is the personification of sin. So, when Jesus became that very thing, he took on the devil's nature himself. That's tough for us to accept. But that's what the Bible says. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for a reason, to pay the price. At that point, he became spiritually dead. Remember, Jesus told the disciples and those around him, he said, no man can take my life from me, but I can lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can take it up again. You remember in the cross, the last thing Jesus said was, it is finished into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. In other words, Jesus has literally at that moment become sin. And darkness covered the face of the earth. Instantly. Darkness covered the face of the earth. See, these were historical events. These are things that people in the, in the Bible days remembered if they were present. And they were well enough known that even if they weren't present, if they didn't witness it themselves, there was evidence enough not to dispute it. So Jesus became sin. He died spiritually. But when that moment came, when the price was paid, God said, it is enough. And the life of God came back upon Jesus. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. That means Jesus was the first person born again. Somehow or another, we seem to have the idea... That our born-again experience is different than what Jesus, the life of God that Jesus has. But the reality is the same born-again experience that Jesus has is the born-again experience that you have. If the Bible's true. I settled that one a long time ago. Jesus was born again. And he was raised from the dead. The Bible says he was raised from the dead when you were justified. When you were declared righteous. In other words the price was paid. And God said that's enough. Mankind is declared righteous. Because of the sacrifice of my son. Now there's only one thing left to do. And that is to accept what he's done for you. Him who knew no sin was made to be sin. That you. Might be made. The righteousness of God. When I was six years old, just before my seventh birthday, I had an experience that I remember just as well as if it happened yesterday. Something happened on the inside of me that changed me. The best way I know how to describe it is the light went out on the inside. I was conscious of it, and I knew what caused it. There was something on the inside of me. I know now that it was the voice of God that was telling me that I needed to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now, my mom and I and my brother were going to church at the time. And so I knew that every week at the church that we went to, they would give an altar call and invite people to come down and give their hearts to Jesus. So I knew what they I knew a little bit about what they were talking about. And when this voice on the inside of me told me that I needed to accept Jesus, it scared me. Looking back at it, it shouldn't have. But as six years old, you know, I thought that meant I had to go down in front of everybody to the front of the church. And that scared me. So I didn't do anything about it. And for, I'm not sure exactly how long it was, maybe up to about ten days. A week or ten days maybe. I was miserable. I'm a six-year-old kid. It's not like I've got a sinful past. (laughs) It's not like there's some great wrong that I've committed and and haven't repented of or, or something like that. For me, it wasn't about sin. It was about obeying the voice on the inside. Well, after a week or 10 days, I finally went and talked to my mom about it, told her what was going on. She said, well, Mike, you don't have to go down to the front of the church. That's the first good news of the gospel that I remember. (laughs) She said, you don't have to go down to the front of the church. We could pray right here. I said, can we, mom? She said, yeah. So we knelt down in the room where we were. And we prayed, and she she knew enough, thank God, she knew enough about how to pray to get me saved, what to have me say and what to have me do. And immediately, I remember it like it was today, immediately that light came back on on the inside. And that light's been on ever since. That's 53 and a half years ago. You can do the math later. I haven't always been faithful and obedient to that voice on the inside but he's always been faithful to me he's always been there and even at my worst my most disobedient he never departed that light never went out he never said well okay I've given you a chance too bad for you time's up tired of fooling with you he's always been there and he's always been faithful I think a lot of times we speak of the resurrection and speak of Jesus coming into people's hearts from a standpoint of sin and fixing their lives from their wrongdoings but really it always comes down to the same thing whether you have things to repent of which we all do or if you Consider yourself to be a good person, moral person. It always comes down to the same thing, and that is obeying that voice on the inside. We'll never be happy until we obey that voice on the inside. It's Jesus saying, I'm alive, and I want to live in you. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes?